Well, Father, as we take our Bibles and study together, I just pray that you would use it to to challenge our hearts, to transform our minds, and to strengthen us in our Christian walk. Father, we, we do want to grow in our faith and in our confidence of who you are and all that Christ has done for us. And I just pray that you would use this time and, and this uh, story in the life of John the Baptist as we continue our study together to, to strengthen us in our faith. We do believe, Lord. Now help us in our unbelief and help us in our walk that we would be the light and the church that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, the date was April 20, 1999. It's the day that Cassie Bernal's name became a household name. Do you remember that day? This is the day of the Columbine High School Massacre. Thirteen boys and girls, teenagers, were slaughtered in cold blood by a heinously wicked young man, totally disjointed in his thinking and no doubt demon-influenced, demonically influenced. I wonder if you heard the story. There were a lot of stories about Cassie, and in fact, her father wrote a book about her. The night before she was killed and before the Columbine High School massacre, Cassie wrote in her, in a note to a friend, she wrote, Honestly, I want to live completely for God. It's hard and it's scary, but it's totally worth it. Just a little while on the morning of the massacre, having written that the night before, a little while before the massacre, she handed that, to, that note to one of her best friends who went to youth group with her. Cassie had no idea that in just a little while, she was going to be in the most unlikely an undesirable position of looking down the barrel of a gun and someone screaming at her, do you believe in Christ? And you remember, and that's where the title of her father's book about her came in, and she said yes. And when she said yes, he pulled the trigger and it killed her. Now, I don't know um, how I would react in that situation, Cassie had no idea how she would react in that situation. It happens in a, in a blink, in a moment. It's com- completely unforeseen most of the time. It's unfortunate and horrible. And I wonder, if someone were to challenge you with a gun or without a gun, and were to say, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? What would you say? I hope you would, and I hope you know why you would say that. It's interesting to me, and I've gotten hung up on it a little bit, that um, John the Baptist that we encounter in Matthew chapter 11, but instead of turning to Matthew 11's account, let's go to Luke 7 this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 7, that it's the parallel account, and and Luke sheds a little bit more uh, color on the details of this event And I found last week, as we were dealing in Matthew 11 with the doubt of John the Baptist, and if you were here, you recall that we we were talking about reasons that we doubt. And we know that John the Baptist uh, was a man of God. He was a prophet, raised up by God in a very unique and special role to be the one 
who would call forth to the people and let them know that Messiah was coming. He's the one who shouted out in the wilderness that Messiah was coming to repent, to prepare the way. He's the one who had our Lord in his hands in the river as he baptized him, as the skies opened and as God's voice bellowed out affirmation and the spirit came down like a dove. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. John was there. John was hands on. John was in first person with Jesus at that time in his ministry. John is the one who said, look, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, affirming who Jesus was with confidence. John was the one who would say, I'm not even worthy to unlace the sandals that he's wearing. And John in his bold message, and in John in his affirmation of Christ, and his message of repentance for sin, called out to the king that he was living in sin in an adulterous relationship having stolen his brother's wife and now living in open immorality and John called it out the wife the the mistress didn't like it and had the king throw him in jail and that's where John is in a deep dark pit and in the deep dark pit as we often experience ourselves is where doubt can creep in i think that in many ways John's question to Jesus, which we will read and review in just a moment, are you the Christ? was brought on by an unmet expectation, an anticipation in John's ministry that when Jesus came, he would come with his winnowing fork in his hand and we would be baptized with the Holy Spirit, but we would be baptized with fire. And I kind of believe that that's the part of the message John really liked to preach. And he wanted justice, and he wanted justice right now, and he wanted a new system, and he wanted Messiah to to implement the change that was promised in the Old Testament, and to bring peace in Jerusalem, and, and to resolve all of the inequities and the injustices of society, and to establish his kingdom, and now John is in a very uh, unjust uh, system, experiencing injustice at a personal level uh, that is palpable, and he's thrown into a dungeon, and there he sits. And in fact, he won't even get out. John is going to lose his head because of preaching against sin and warning them of their lack of self-control and the coming judgment that they will suffer for it. John probably never gets to see Jesus again, even though Jesus is really not that far away. When we're in Luke chapter 7, which is just the parallel account of Matthew chapter 11, Luke sheds a little bit of color commentary. And so I thought we would use Luke 7 today because as I referenced, I'm a bit hung up on John's question. I'm hung up on the concept of doubt and doubting Jesus. And what I want us to do for our message today is I want us to scrutinize carefully and examine how Jesus responds to John's question. John is sending, and Luke tells us, two of his disciples to Jesus to ask a specific question. Are you the Christ? And I want us to ask that question with John, and I want us to have ears to hear and eyes to see from the text as we look at the text, how is it that Jesus answered this question? Because you see, we might not end up in a situation like Cassie did, where we're looking down the barrel of a gun and we have to give an instant response, do you believe in Christ? But we find ourselves in all kinds of situations, don't we? Where we are questioned about our faith. 
And where people can even look down their nose in some kind of condescending way like, you believe the Bible's true? You believe that Jesus is who he said he was? I'm a little bit concerned about our young people coming up through their lower grades and, and getting into an upper grade system. Sometimes it doesn't even take upper grades. I was thinking in preparation for this message that as far back as I can recall, the first time that I made a public defense for my faith in the veracity of Scripture was arguing with my fourth grade teacher about Noah's flood. I would love to have that on video. I believed with all my heart as a fourth grade kid in 1969 that that was a universal flood that flooded the whole earth and that all of the species in the world today were on that boat. And I believe it a hundred times more today. But man, I would love to hear that. I wonder what I said. I, I can't remember it. That's hilarious. But we find ourselves uh, off at university in the intro to philosophy or some sociology class or an intro to world religions class. And we have a professor who loves to mock Jesus, who loves to, to make believe that Christians have no leg on which to stand for their faith and that the Bible is, is some kind of erroneous, porous textbook when nothing could be further from the truth. That in fact the truth is, is that the Bible as a, as a historical document most often is light years ahead of other books of antiquity when it comes to textual criticism and veracity and, and, and documentary proof. And so I, I think we need to be prepared. Why is it? Why is it that I follow Christ? Why is it that I'm not into Muhammad or Sun Myung Moon or Joseph Smith like these young men tonight were? Why? Why Jesus? Well... Because he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. You know, that, that is true. Isn't there an, a mystical aspect of being a Christian? But there's a mystical aspect of every other world religion too. So I think that it could be very valuable to us recognizing that John in the dungeon of doubt is asking Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else and let's scrutinize what exactly Jesus responds with? Because I think we'll find in Jesus' response four legs on the stool that will support us in our faith. Four pillars in the foundation of our faith that are practical and simple points that Jesus wants to remind John, you have nothing to worry about. Let's read Luke's account. Let's begin with verse 18. It's Luke chapter 7. And the disciples of John reported all these things to him. What did they report? Well, let your eyes go back to 7-11. And if we have time, we'll talk about this story uh, later. Uh, notice that this is uh, the story in chapter 7, verse 11, where he went. Jesus went to the town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And they drew near the gate of the town. And they were carrying out a young man, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a big crowd was there from the town. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, don't weep. And then he came up and he touched the buyer. And the bearer stood still. Jesus calls out to the dead man, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And I just say, whoa, that's pretty cool. And that's what we mean. And the disciples of John, verse 18, reported all these things to him. 
And John, calling two of his disciples to him, so somehow John gets word through the prison guard system that he wants two of his disciples to come, and he sent them to the Lord saying, and here's our question that I'm hung up on. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you just one in a sequence of forerunners, or are you the true Messiah? I don't think that John was denying the fact that Jesus was sent from God, but was he the ultimate Messiah? Is he the one that you look down the barrel of the gun at and say, that's my guy. Kabam. So be it. And when the the men had come to him, verse 20, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So can't you see these guys getting to Jesus All right. And they say, hey, John has sent us to him and Jesus knows exactly what they're talking about. And they ask the question, John wants you to answer a question for him. John wants you to know without a shadow of a doubt if you're the one. Or shall we look for another? Then verse 21, immediately what happens? This is what I like about Luke's account over Matthew's account. In that hour... So when they ask the question, it's as though Jesus turns to the crowd, doesn't even answer the question immediately, and look what happens. And he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, now go and tell John what you have seen. So you see what he said? He's like, okay, they asked the question, are you the right one? Are you the real Christ? Are you really Jesus the Messiah? And he says... Nothing to them. He turns and for about an hour he heals people. And then he gets back to these guys and he says, now go and tell John what you just saw. All right. And he says something to them. Look what he says. He says, and he answered them, go and tell John. Here's what he says, what you have seen and heard. He says, the blind receive their sight. So he's kind of dictating a note to the disciples of John to make sure you get this right. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who has not offended by me. And that is a footnote directly to John from Jesus. It's a word to us today, too. It's it's a gentle, loving poke in the eye. And by the way, John, blessed are those who believe even if they haven't seen. It's a little bit like he said to Thomas, and blessed are those who believe even though they haven't seen. And blessed are those who are not put off by me. And blessed are those who don't let their faith waver and they just trust and pay attention and stick with me and don't get up, don't give up. It is encouraging though, isn't it, that God is faithful even when we are faithless, Paul said to Timothy. I don't think it's wrong sometimes in the dungeon of doubt. To review in our minds, well, why, how did I get where I am? What, what, what do I really know? Why am I really following Christ? Well, as I said, I think that Jesus' answer is worth scrutinizing. And he gives us four pillars that support our faith. Pillar number one is embedded in the very way that Jesus speaks the word to tell the disciples to tell John. So let's look at that first. And what pillar number one is, is the prophecies that are unmistakably fulfilled. Prophecies that are unmistakably fulfilled. Okay, John, you want to answer? Okay, John, you want to know if I'm the one? 
the first thing that Jesus puts in John's mind with the word that he sends back to his disciples is prophecies that are unmistakably fulfilled in him and in him alone. What do we mean by this? Notice what, John, what Jesus said to tell John. It's down in verse 22. Tell John what you've seen, but then he says, The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What we don't realize, but that I think is beyond a shadow of a doubt, is that John, hearing what the disciples told him Jesus said, his mind would have immediately gone to Isaiah, and it would have gone to Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. Let's go there. Isaiah chapter 35. Okay, Isaiah is one of the major prophets. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. I think Song of Solomon's in there somewhere. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Isaiah chapter 35. Take a look at that. And notice that when Jesus would have loosely paraphrased or quoted this, this would have been very familiar terminology. It would have been very familiar words to John. John would have studied Isaiah all of his life. And Isaiah is written some 400 years or so before Christ. It's one of the prophetic books of the Old Testament. At this time of Jesus' ministry, Jesus would have had scrolls of this text in his hand. Perhaps John even studied this. They would have had the writings of Moses. They would have had the writings of David that we have today. They would have had the writings of Solomon. They would have had the writings of all of the prophets, both major and minor. And the reason we call them major is because they're big books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then when you start getting to all those hard to pronounce ones, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, all those are minor prophets because they're little books. But all of those prophets had spoken. It was recorded. And John the Baptist would have been familiar with that. That was his Bible. And when Jesus says, tell John this, in John the Baptist's ears, it would have been Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Look what it says. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And, and shall, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. You see, Jesus was loosely quoting Isaiah. It was like a paraphrase. John would have thought that immediately. Turn to Isaiah 61, 1. Bible students believe very much that this is what Jesus was referencing when he said, and he preaches good news to the poor. The gospel is going out and transforming lives, John. John, the Messiah has come exactly the way Isaiah said. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, and so forth. You recall that early in the ministry of our Lord, when he went to the temple one day to be a part of prayer time and scripture reading time, that they handed him the scroll to pick out the reading of the day, and he had opened it up to Isaiah 61, this very passage. Remember that? He had opened it up and he said, the spirit of God is upon me and the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And he, he reads the passage, he rolls it up and he says, today, this is fulfilled in your presence. John would have known about that afternoon. John knew about these scriptures. 
And so I, I don't hesitate for a minute to think that John understood that Jesus was from God, but he was just wanting to clarify why things weren't unfolding the way he pictured it. And so when Jesus sends back a word, number one thing he does is he quotes from Isaiah, which immediately, as I would think, is clear for us to understand when we understand what's happening is that immediately what Jesus is sending is sort of a, in a sort of a subtle message to John. John, when you read Isaiah, what do you read? And when you see my ministry, what do you see? And what you see, John, is you see the literal fulfillment of these prophecies right here today. Pillar number one of why I believe that Jesus is the Messiah is all of the fulfilled prophecies of old that came true in one man. And you say, well, that's just a couple. You need to know that there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of prophecies about our Lord's ministry, about his appearing, about his birth. Isaiah talked about that. And the prophetic fulfillment of all of the things that happened in his lifetime are the very things that would have come to John's mind. Many of them, many of them of the prophecies of the Old Testament pertain to his death, which hadn't happened yet. So John wouldn't have been there in his mind. And they also pertain to his second coming. And we're to understand some of those. Let me just read a list. Um, I take this page out of, a, out of a, a book by Norm Geisler called Christian Apologetics. And Norm Geisler is, is talking about how dozens and dozens of Old Testament prophecies came true in one man. And that was Jesus, the Nazarene, Jesus Messiah. Let me just rattle them off. There are scripture verses that go with all of these where you can see in the Old Testament, where hundreds of years before Jesus came, it was prophesied, and then we have the accounts of the gospel, and it came true exactly as the Old Testament said. The Messiah would be born of a woman. That's not that hard to guess, but he would be born of a virgin. That's a little more tough. He would come some 483 years after 444 BC. Daniel talked about that. He will be of the seed of Abraham. He will be of the tribe of Judah. He will be of the house of David. His birthplace will be Bethlehem. He will be anointed by the Holy Spirit. He will be heralded by a messenger of the Lord. He will have a ministry of miracles. He will cleanse the temple. He will be rejected by his Jewish people. He He will die a humiliating death and involving his death. The prophecies said that there would be rejection by his own people. There would be silence. He would be silent before his accusers, that he would be mocked, that his hands and feet would be pierced. He would be crucified with thieves. He would be praying for his persecutors. They would pierce his side. They would bury him in a rich man's tomb. They would cast lots for his garments. And then it goes on and there's even prophecies that he would rise from the dead in the Old Testament. Psalm 2 speaks specifically of that. Psalm 16, Jesus himself prophesied about that, that he would ascend into heaven, that he would sit at the right hand of God. And that's only about 20 of the Old Testament prophecies that all came true in Jesus, one man. But maybe you're like H.I. Sconfield, who wrote the book, The Passover Plot. Geisler talks about him in his Christian apologetics. Um, Josh McDowell quotes from him a good bit. He wrote a book called The Passover Plot, and, and he proposes in The Passover Plot that... Um, that Jesus was a pretender and that all of the things that were recorded about Jesus were faked and that it was faked 
fulfillment of prophecy. Well, let me respond to that if you're skeptical this morning and you say, well, wait a minute. All right, I understand your argument. And by the way, parentheses, let's revisit uh, the historicity of the Bible. Let's visit the, the, the documentary credibility of, of the writings. We don't have time for a whole message on textual criticism, and I'm not even very good at that. But I just want to say again that I understand that if you're skeptical today and you're arguing against the claims that prophecy fulfilled in Christ is not a good pillar or argument for us to stand upon for our faith because it's all dependent on the accounts of Scripture. Let me just say again that that the Scripture has been scrutinized and that in the area of textual criticism, the Bible and the, the accounts come out light years ahead of any other text of antiquity when it's given the same kind of scrutiny. There is no reason to doubt the veracity or the authenticity of Scripture. Now, you're going to find liberal scholars who will try to do that. It is, it is absolutely not true when looked, looked at in the classroom of objectivity. So I know you can say, okay, everything you're saying, Pastor Van, is dependent upon the Scripture. But I want to tell you that one of the things that Jesus did regularly was he argued his points based upon Scripture. And Paul did the same thing. Not the least of which was his argument for the veracity of the very resurrection of Christ, which he said, according to the Scripture. You want to know why? According to the Scripture, it had to be fulfilled because the Scripture was and is the Word of God. So I understand that line of logic. But back to the Passover plot and, and those who, like Sconfield, would, would operate under the pretense that Jesus was fraudulent or fake. What do we respond to that? First of all, I want you to see that it's, it's logically implausible. It is logically implausible, number one, that all of these prophecies could come true in one man, in one time, in one place. A few examples of the arguments we would give under, under an illogic here is, number one, that first of all, it does not fit the known character of Jesus of Nazareth. You can't build an argument that Jesus was a fraudulent person. In fact, he was anything but cunning and deceptive. He was open and he was honest and he was transparent and, he, and, and like the preacher's Peter and James in, in the book of Acts and, and Paul when he stood before Felix and when he was arguing, he said, these things didn't happen in a dark corner somewhere. They happened wide open under the spotlight. Jesus was transparent and honest. It goes against the character of Christ. So you right away, it doesn't fit well to argue that Jesus was a fake. There's other writers and apologists who've done a good job. You've heard of of the trilemma of Lord, liar, or lunatic, and those kinds of thoughts. Secondly, though, and uh, it's logically implausible because it is so highly unlikely, even impossible, that anyone could control people and events to fake such powerful miracles. Jesus did miracles according to the prophecies of the Old Testament. So how do you fake 
Okay, how do you fake getting a guy to get naked up on the top of a cliff and live among tombs and cut himself with rocks and act like he's demon-possessed so that when you get out of a boat, you can cast the demons out of him and they go and you got it arranged with the hog farmers nearby that the demons are going to go get in the hogs and then they're going to run crazy and he's going to have his dogs ready to chase the hogs off the cliff and drown them all and then the guy's going to get dressed and act clothed in his right mind after all that going on and you put that all together. That's just mind-boggling. How do you stand in front of a multitude of people? How do you stand in front of a multitude of people and take a little boy's loaves and fishes and begin to break them and fill baskets full so that there's, you feed 5,000 people and you have basketfuls and basketfuls left over? You can't hide that. You can't fake that. How does that happen? How do you arrange for your buddy Lazarus to get sick? And for them to wrap him up and for everybody else in that neighborhood to be in on the faked out, fraudulent death of his buddy Lazarus and put him in the tomb. And then with all these people standing around, you call forth and he gets out of his clothes and comes blinking out into the sunlight and you pulled it off. Listen, his his life and ministry of miracles alone would have been impossible to fake. And I'm telling you, the New Testament, the New Testament has incredible textual strength and historical, we can have historical confidence in in that these things really happen. Thirdly, it is logically implausible because of the character of Christ, because of the complexity of his miracles. And number three, because of the inability to manipulate prophetic utterances. The inability to manipulate prophetic utterances. We're talking about how does Jesus just so happen to be born in Bethlehem and how does he happen to come into Jerusalem later, 33 years later on a donkey and how do you pull all that off and how do you make that all fit the Old Testament? You got the point. It's just logically implausible to say he was a fake. But not only that, I think secondly you can argue that it's scientifically impossible for Jesus to be a fraud and to pull off all of the things that he did. Uh, Josh McDowell, as well as Norm Geisler, who are both um, well-known names in evangelical world and defending our faith, both quote a guy named Peter Stoner. Peter Stoner, and he wrote a book called Science Speaks. And Peter Stoner was looking at some of the mathematical and scientific elements of criticizing Christ and saying that mathematically or scientifically you can prove that he could have faked it. And really it's the other way around. Science and math and, and, the, and the whole world of statistics show that it, was, it is beyond impossible for one man to have pulled this off. For example, Peter Stoner in his book Science Speaks, picks out 10 miracles, just 10 of the, excuse me, 10 prophetic statements about the death of our Lord. He picks out 10 statements about the death of our Lord among dozens and dozens and dozens of prophetic statements. Okay, so what we're talking about is we're talking about statements that were made four to 600 years before Jesus lived and died, and how all of this came true in the life of Christ, and how mathematically it was impossible to pull that off. Statistically, you couldn't make that happen. So scientifically, it's impossible. Here's the ten, here's the ten events that were prophesied about his death that Peter Stoner talks about. 
Number one, born in Bethlehem. Number two, preceded by a messenger. That would be John the Baptist. Number three, he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Number four, he would be betrayed by a friend. Number five, his hands and feet would be pierced. Number six, he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Number seven, he would sit in complete silence before his accusers. Number eight, he would be crucified with thieves. Number nine, Judas would take the money with which he had sold Jesus, and he would take that money and he would throw it into the temple and the house of the Lord. And number 10, that 30 pieces of silver would be picked up and it would be the exact price of the potter's field and it would be used to buy the potter's field. Those 10 things are all prophesied four to 600 years before Jesus ever lived. All right. Peter Stoner did a study and let me just try to um, capture it here and just read to you. What are the odds or the chance that a man would have lived in history at just the right time to fulfill all these things and it was all chance or it was chicanery? We find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled even eight of the prophecies is one in, in ten to the 17th power. So the odds are one in ten to the 17th power. That is, that would be a one with 17 zeros following it. And Ben Baker informed me that it is, what again? One, 100 quadrillion. So the odds are one in 100 quadrillion. I have no idea if he's correct, but it sounds right to me. Okay? One in 100 quadrillion are the odds that even eight of these ten would be fulfilled in Christ. He then goes on and gives a familiar explanation of what those odds look like, and maybe you've heard this. In order to help us comprehend this staggering probability, Stoner illustrates it by supposing that we take 10 to the 17th power, that is 100 quadrillion silver dollars, 100 quadrillion silver dollars, and we lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all of the state of Texas two feet deep. Imagine all of the state of Texas with a fence around it, and it's two feet high, and it's flush with silver dollars. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir it into the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold one man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but then he, at the end of the day, must pick up one silver dollar and he must say that he knows he has the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? It's the same chance that these prophets would have had of writing these eight or ten prophecies and having them all come true coincidentally in any one man during any present time or that anybody could even pull off the fakery of it. In other words, it ain't going to happen. What are the odds? It is statistically beyond impossible. So what are we talking about? Jesus is ministering publicly John is in a deep, dark dungeon. John has questioned in discouragement, are you really the Christ? He sent two of his disciples to Jesus. 
Jesus is asked a question from John by the two disciples. Are you the Christ? John wants to know. Jesus takes an hour and heals the blind, makes the lame to walk, and does works. And then he turns to them and he said, go and tell John this. He quotes from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. And the very first argument and foundational pillar for John the Baptist to be renewed in his faith and to be encouraged in his faith is that the Lord wants me to know that he is the precise fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. And I say to you today, we can have the same confidence. You want to know why we follow Jesus? Because I'm not willing to tear my Old Testament out of my Bible or my New Testament out of my Bible. I just can't get past them. And and, and it points precisely to Jesus. Pillar number one. We only have three more. And that's not a joke. You shouldn't laugh at your pastor when he's in a quandary. Well, let's look quickly at the passage. Notice that what Jesus did then, and this is part of his answer to John, is he took an hour and he healed the sick and made the blind to see. The second thing I want you to understand why we believe that Jesus is the Christ, number one, the the prophetic fulfillment, number two, that people were miraculously healed. Prophecies, number one, unmistakably fulfilled. Number two, people miraculously healed. Look at back at verse 21 of Luke. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And many who were blind, he bestowed sight. When I was looking at this, it triggered in me the story that's in John's Gospel in chapter 9. Will you turn there with me? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're going to go just a few more minutes here. In John chapter 9, and let's use John 9 as a case study of the kind of thing that John the Baptist's disciples could report back to him from Jesus. This is what it looked like when Jesus healed the blind. And I want you to see That it was questioned, it was criticized, it was critiqued, and it was verified. And you have here an example of what Jesus is sending back to John as pillar number two. You want to know who I am? People are being miraculously healed. Let's read this story quickly and you'll get the point easily. It reads well. As he passed, he is Jesus, Luke... John 9 now is where we are, verse 1. And as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And we must work the works of him who sent me while it is yet day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This is incredible. All right? And he's like, man, that's a fairy tale. Well, you need to understand that the disciples asked a pretty important question up front. A little bit of Jewish tradition and superstition would mean that if you had a baby that was born handicapped, that you were paying for your sin. Praise God for the cross and grace. We don't have to pay the penalty for our own sin. Now, sometimes there is a consequence of sin, right? Do stupid, sinful stuff, pay stupid, sinful cost. 
Turn on the garbage disposal, ram your hand in, lose your hand. All right? It's, that happens. But when it comes to our innate sinfulness, listen and get this well. We don't pay the price for our own sin. Jesus went to the cross and He hung there. And He paid the penalty for our sin. So that all of the stupid, rotten, sinful stuff that I've done is covered with the blood. And I have victory in Jesus. And it was as though, like we sang, it's not great theology, but it it makes a point. It was as though He did it all just for me. And it was like I was the only one he cared about. That's how personal that work can be at the cross. When you come to the cross and admit your sinfulness, and you don't have to any longer pay the penalty for your sin, because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you just reach out and take Jesus. And then you're saved, and your sin is forgiven. You repent of your old ways. I turn away from sin. I turn toward Christ. I believe that he, what He did was for me. And I am washed white as the driven snow. And now my sin, the Bible says, is as far as the east is from the west. And I'm not accountable for it. It also transforms your life, though. Doesn't it, Brett? And any man who's in Christ is a new creation. And the old is gone and the new has come. So one thing we don't do is we don't go to the cross and confess our sin so that we can get like credit, so that we can go more sin, so that next week we can come back to the cross. No, we don't do that. There are systems that do that. It's called indulgences. Give enough money in the offering plate and you can go sin for the week. And then just come and confess it. No, it's a transforming work that Christ does. So these parents did not have to pay the price for their own sin. And they they wanted to know, was the man born blind because he sinned or because the parents sinned? And Jesus says something most remarkable. He says, no, that little boy never put a worm on his own hook with his own eyes. He never can't tell. He never knew the difference between an oak tree and a maple tree. And he never watched a sunset. And he never watched an airplane or a kite fly. I know not an airplane, but a kite fly in the sky. And he doesn't know what a wasp looks like. And he doesn't know what the difference between a horse and a mule and a zebra with his own eyes. So that he could sit here all day, every day, his whole life, begging. So that today, the glory of Christ could be seen. And it is so that Jesus could spit in the mud, smear it on his eyes, and the guy could see. And you say, well, how do we know that was the guy? This is exactly what they said. This is hilarious what happens. you got to get this before you leave. So he says, go wash, verse 7, in the pool of Siloam. And he went and washed, and he came back seeing. And the neighbors and those who had seen him before he was a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some of the neighbors said, yeah, that's him. And others said, no, no, it's somebody who looks like him. So you got the neighborhood debating, who is this guy? Because we know the guy who was born blind. He's been sitting in our neighborhood and we saw him and our kids grew up with him. And now they're arguing. They're like, I don't know. How did he see? And he kept saying, the guy kept saying at the end of verse 9, I am the man. I'm the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and he anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Some people ask, why did he do that? Why did Jesus do that? I don't know. Maybe, maybe it has to do with the Beatitudes and how only humble people go to God. Are you going to let somebody spit and smear mud on your face and stand still? You start smacking their hands away. And if he says, go dip in the pool, and you're going to find somebody to grab your arm, you could grab their arm and get down to the pool, and then you go wash that mud off on your face, and I'm going to do whatever he says. 
it seems to be an indication of this man's humility and dependence on Christ. And let me tell you, only humble people come to the cross. Cocky, know-it-all, arrogant people who don't think they sin don't come to the cross. But people who are blind and need to see, they come to the cross. And so what he says, look. Then how were your eyes open? Verse 10. And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes. So I went and washed and received sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. And they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. So they get the Pharisees involved. Verse 13. Now it was a Sabbath day. And when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes, the day that he happened. So the Pharisees, they get wound up about this. And they ask how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. You see, mixing saliva with dirt and making mud and smearing it on a blind man's eyes would be considered work. And, and if you were a godly man, you wouldn't work on the Sabbath and the Pharisees were rule keepers. And so they all really wound up about this. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Somebody else asked a pretty good question. All right, well, if he's a sinner and he doesn't keep the Sabbath, then you tell me how he opened his eyes. And there was a division among them, I guess so. So they said again to the blind man, they keep on talking to this guy. What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, well, he's a prophet. And the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had... This is hilarious, isn't it? It's like, go get this guy's mom and dad. I want to talk to him right now, these pompous religious leaders. So somebody heads up the street, finds this old couple, and puts them in a cart and wheels them down there so the Pharisees can grill them. And they go, is this your son right here? And they asked him, is this your son, verse 19, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. All right, we, we, give, we verify that. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Parenthetically, verse 22. His parents said that because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already made an announcement and agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he'd get kicked out of their local synagogue. They're followers of Moses, not, not this Jesus guy. Therefore, the parents said, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind, and they get him in there, and then they say in their spiritual pompousness, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, they're talking about Jesus. He's a sinner. We know it. Now you give testimony and glory to God and tell us this guy's a sinner that did this. And the man says, this is great. Well, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. He's got a sense of humor and he's poking the Pharisees in the eye. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become disciples? And they reviled him saying, they just hiss. Can't you hear him hissing? You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know what God has spoken to Moses because it was in writing and they memorized it all. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. 
We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And there it is. Pillar number two, right? Now, the argument again, well, Pastor Van, that is completely dependent on the fact that that's a true story. And I'm telling you, it's a true story. Whether you like my evidence or not, you can go to university and study. Well, we got two pillars in. Where are we? Jesus sending the disciples back to John, telling them. John wants to know, are you the Christ? And Jesus said, when you read Isaiah, what do you read? And let me take an hour and show you what I'm doing here. And you go tell them. Number one. Prophecies unmistakably fulfilled. Number two, people miraculously healed. And I'm not going to keep preaching. Number three, the next thing he says in his statement is he raises the dead. And that's the 7-11 that they already reported. Luke 7-11 and the widow at Nain's son that they already reported to John. Number three, power to effortlessly raise the dead. It's all the proof I need. If the story's true, and I believe the story's true, and he can reach out and touch that young man and raise him from the dead, I want to be on his team. And that's not even speaking about his own resurrection where he raised with power, authenticated Romans 1-4 through the Holy Spirit, raised with power to verify that he was the Son of God. And then finally, and I think that it's interesting, and let me say this, that when John is giving, or when Luke is giving, we're back at Luke 7, when Luke is giving his answers to John, John, number one, prophecies unmistakably fulfilled. John, number two, people miraculously healed. John, number three, power to effortlessly raise the dead. John, number four, preaching the unbelievably good news and lives being transformed. The last thing he says for them to tell John is that the poor are hearing the good news. And he quotes Isaiah 61. And lives are being transformed. You know the the, the naked guy up in the tombs in Mark 5 at Gadaria? He's in all the several gospels. But do you think he believed in Jesus? Do you know what he would tell you in his testimony? He would say that if the good news had not been preached to me, I would be dead today. I think there's people in this room that would have to raise their hand if I said, if you had not received the good news, you'd be dead today. You'd be dead. You'd be burning in hell. And it's only the transforming power of the gospel of the good news. I want to tell you something. I am not embarrassed to follow this Christ. And I don't think you're intellectually erroneous or to be marginalized or simple. If you think fulfillment of prophecy... Reality of impossible miracles, raising the dead, and the transforming power of the good news. If you think those four reasons don't matter, then you've got to find another book to study. Because I think that I'm not embarrassed of any of those four reasons. And that's why, along with John, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. He sealed it all with his own resurrection. Amen? Let's stand and close in prayer. Father, it's always good to gather. It's good to think and be challenged. We're humbled to hold your Bible in our hands. We love this Lord Jesus. 
We long to see him. And one day, the world will know who he is. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. With our heads bowed, can I pause in the prayer and ask you if you acknowledge Jesus as Lord today? In the privacy of your own mind and heart, would you humble yourself and come to Jesus? Confess your sin, forsake, forsake your old ways, and receive the free gift of salvation in Christ. He went to the cross, paid the penalty for your sin, and he rose again to prove it was true. I hope so. hope you'll do that right now. Father, thank you for the good news preached to us poor, impoverished individuals. In our poverty, you brought us riches in Christ. You've transformed our lives. We know the gospel's true because apart from that gospel, we'd probably be dead today. So thank you for your grace and your goodness. We look forward to being in your presence one day. In the meantime, help us to walk in faithfulness before you. In Jesus' name.